My thought tonight is going to be talking about loving God in the midst of idolatrous uh, times and nations. And we're going to bring it into the current day. We're not going to leave it in the Old Testament and talk about them way back then. Let's talk about us way into now. Ain't nothing we could do about them way back then. Um, I'm going to read Psalms 135. And I'm going to be reading this from... You know, I think I'll read both versions. I'm going to read the Living Bible Translation first. 135 verse 15, Psalm. And I'll read verses 15 through 18. And my prayer for this lesson is that uh, we individually will ask God and seek him to see where our focus of of worship really lies. Not that we can deceive ourselves, but to find the places in our heart where we're hiding and tucking away idols in in our heart. Um, The one thing about the children of Israel is that with their mouths they told Moses, we will do everything that you told us to do. And even when they left Egypt, they left with the I will do spirit. But history tells us that they kept little trinkets of their idols in their pockets and on their bodies, on their persons. They carried it and they did the acts of worship, but their their mind really was still back in Egypt in, in, in their slavery. And it's my prayer that God will allow us to really be honest with ourselves And uh, for some, it'll be a reminder. For others, it'll be a rebuke that uh, God is a jealous God. And the Bible tells us that that is his name forever. That means he will not take second place. He will not coexist with any other thing. And this is our stance on the Trinitarian doctrine. When they say that there are three persons, co-eternal, co-existent, and co-equal, There is no co with God. He stands all by himself, always has and always will. And that is the problem that we have with Trinitarian doctrine is how could somebody that is all together, um, all powerful, all knowing and all and everywhere existing at the same time. How can he coexist with anything? Uh, How can something that which one created all things if it coexisted with somebody? Then we we have a disagreement with who created what? So if we get into that, that becomes a dangerous thing for the mindset because we our minds become fragmented and the Bible tells us that a un, double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So we, we must stick to uh, the oneness thought throughout Scripture and we have to deal with that and, and live in that in our lives of worship. So with that, um, Psalm 135 verse 15 It says, the heathen worship idols of gold and silver made by men, idols with speechless mouths, sightless eyes, and ears that cannot hear, they cannot even breathe. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. And my my, uh, point I do want to pick up is verse 18, is that those who make them become like them. And in creating an idol, there, there lies a great danger of you becoming the idol that you created. 
And that's why I believe that so many people are, are fragmented in their minds and their spirits is because the thing that God allowed them to worship is the thing that he allowed them to become. And it's, it's a curse from God when he gives you up to the idol that you created. And um, we certainly know that uh, when Moses was getting the mind of God, that he came down and they had created a calf. Well, when God rebuked them for that, he made them melt the calf down and he put it in the water. In other words, whatever you create it to worship, now it's going to be the thing that sustains you. The water is, is the source of their life. They live near water so that they can, they can have water to sustain their life and their livestock. But God made them melt that uh, gold and silver down and put it in the elements of their sustenance. So it becomes part of who you are. And so we, we really have to really um, appreciate in Scripture when God shows us what our idols are. I just want to talk about idolatry from a definition standpoint. And these I got from some of the uh, Bible commentary dictionaries. And um, a couple of them are really good. Idolatry is divine honor that is paid to any created object. Idolatry originally meant the worship of idols or the worship of false gods by means of idols. But it came to mean among the Old Testament Hebrews, any worship of false gods, whether by images or otherwise. And finally, the worship of Yahweh through visible symbols and ultimately in the New Testament, idolatry came to mean not only the giving to any creature or human creation, the honor or devotion which belong to God alone, but the giving to any human desire, a precedence over God's. I have to read that again because he packs it with so many definitions that go just beyond that surface thing that we think is idolatry. And we always tied idolatry with somebody bowing in front of a statue. That's the most overt example of idolatry. But in the definition of idolatry, when we break it down, we get into the really nooks and crannies of it. Because he, they were not even to worship Yahweh through images. You can't worship Yahweh through images. God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You cannot worship God through an image. The only image that he gave us to worship him through is Jesus Christ. He is the image of the firstborn. Okay, any other image that we create, we cannot worship God through the symbol of a cross. That's idolatry. You cannot worship him through the statues of, of Mary, the Virgin Mary, and, and, and all of these artifacts that have been created over time to worship God. That is not how he, the only image that he will ever be worshipped through is the one that he gave us, and that is Jesus Christ. Idolatry stems from a craving for visible forms to express religious or spiritual conceptions. We don't walk by sight. We walk by what? Faith. So when you create something that has to have a visible form to prove your faith, you enter into idolatry. 
The first step of idolatry is deification or to glorify as of supreme worth. It is the deification of natural forces and their appeal to primitive human desires. And when we say primitive human desires, it is the basic desires of mankind. It is the things that we like to visualize. Even our, our, our physical appetite, our sexual drive. These are the things that most idols were created to really try to fulfill. This is why um, prostitution and all this kind of stuff was such a big thing in idolatrous religions. Because it was the thing that spoke to the primitive desires of mankind. Because that's really the thing that we chase after in all of our lives. is the things that are the very fiber of our beings. And they're very few. In fact, he narrows it down to the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These are the things that we will go after to worship. And this is why a, a man will worship a woman for her beauty. A woman will worship his man a man for his money, whatever status or whatever she thinks she can get from him. Or a kid will worship their parents over how, you know, grandiose they've made them in their mind. But basically, it's, it's because of the primitive human desires. Idolatry is closely tied to but not limited to an image. Some believe the image was only an aid to worship and not necessarily the object of worship. But this idea proved to be a slippery slope. We find this in the Catholic Church. I'm sure that in the beginning when they started the Hail Mary and the whole, all of that stuff and, and started building the statues, I'm pretty sure that they didn't intentionally say, okay, we're going to worship these apostles or we're going to worship these saints. But over time, guess what happened? That image was blown up in the mind of those that were following them and now if, if something looks like a Virgin Mary on a piece of bread or something, you get Catholics from all over the nation that will fly and come see that thing. Because that image became the eye. It, it didn't start off that way, but it became that. It's this very slippery slope to fall down. And even us in the urban church, we got to be careful because we have deified so much of the physical things that we see and the actions that we do, that we've deified that into saying that God is here or God condones this. But that's man. Man created that. And it's, we have to be careful because like I read in Psalm uh, 135 and 18, that after so long of you worshiping that, that's what you become. So we become just church because we worship having quote unquote church. That's what we worship. That's what we seek after. That's what, that's what drives us during the week. In the middle of the week on Thursday, I can't wait to get to the house of God. It's because we've come to worship that and not just realize that it is just a setting to where we are to, to come and to learn of Christ and to fellowship with one another and come and confess our sins that healing might flow. And that got left long time ago. Just the healing and the confession part uh, we, we just kicked that out and, you know, we're just going to come have chat. Some forms of idolatry is worship of inanimate objects such as stones, trees or rivers, worship of animals, worship of higher powers of nature, such as the sun, the moon, the stars and forces of nature, such as the air, fire and wind, hero worship, 
or worship of deceased ancestors. In fact, the uh, scripture that we wrongly use to tell people not to tattoo their bodies, uh, you know, we just blurt out, the Lord said, don't mark your body. Well, he, he was talking about tattooing your body in remembrance of a, uh, of a deceased loved one. That you that you have de kind of deified that person in a way in your spirit you have you you've elevated them because uh, as far you will never forget them you can never forget a loved one no matter what but it was the tattooing of their dead relative that uh, in fact in the Old Testament you see some practice of them trying to summons the dead and in one uh, particular place they they were able to summons an old prophet. And the prophet woke up and said, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh-huh. Idealism is a form of worship. It is the worship of abstractions and mental qualities, such as justice and peace. Some people that, that have gotten on a bandwagon of just spreading the idealism of peace, sometimes that you could get so stooped into what you're doing and the message that you're promoting is that you start to worship your ideology. And I think that this is what happened uh, mainly to some of us blacks after the whole civil rights movement, is that, that that message became almost equal to the gospel to some. And, and we definitely needed it, but I think that we, should, we need it to be mindful and keep in mind that we can't idolize this idea that we have. Because in every walk of life in different places and different countries and different cultures, that idea is not going to fly. And we got to be mindful that we preach a gospel that will cover every human being on planet Earth. If we are not preaching that message that can affect every single living soul, then that message is going to be subjective. God didn't give us a subjective message. He gave us a global message that had the power to save anybody that it was told to and believed on. So, but idealism is a thing that we can start to idolize, even in search of, of justice. Because really, all ultimate justice is, has to come from God. And if we get away from his form of justice then we, we're out of whack. Just look in California, how long it takes to we, and I know some people don't believe in the death penalty, but even with the death penalty in motion as it legally stands, look how long it takes to execute somebody. You, you say that you're bringing justice and, and we sentenced this person to what we thought was a just penalty for their crime 30, 40 years ago and they still haven't paid. In fact, 60% of those on death row are dying natural deaths. I mean, that goes without going into the whole argument of death penalty or no death penalty. That's just the facts. Even if the way it stands is that even with the death penalty, it's, it's not being carried out. Now, when God creates a justice system, he carries it out and he intends us to carry it out. Another form of idolatry is the worship of other gods through image or symbol or the worship of the image or symbol itself. The core of idolatry. Let's deal with that in Romans 1. We're going to read pretty much all of this right here. Verses 18 through 27. And I have it in the King James Version here on my copy. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. 
Now, that's a statement that really needs pondering. How can you hold the truth of God in unrighteousness? It seemed like the two would never coexist, right? But he says here that there are, there are some who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God had showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. They thought they had knowledge. In fact, the Bible tells us about a certain group of people who are ever learning, but they're never able to come to the truth. How can I keep on learning? And these were learners of spiritual things. He wasn't talking about just book knowledge out there in, in the college world. He was talking about those that studied spiritual things. And the Bible said they're ever learning. They know a lot of stuff, but there's no truth. Jesus told them, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. Like, Lord, we, we've read all this. We know what's in the word. I know the word. I, I, I know the word. I've been walking with God for 40 years. I, I know the word. You sure don't act like it because you don't have the fruit to prove it. But professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Just that last group of uh, things, we can look at the sports world and see the ravens, the bears. We have all these things and people have come to worship these things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their own lust toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error, which was meat. Now what I want to pick up in this whole passage is that, look in verse number 21. They knew God, but they didn't glorify him as God. 25, they changed the truth of God into a lie. So what we have here really didn't start out as a flesh problem. The flesh problem was the curse of their worship problem. God gave them over to do that stuff because their worship was misplaced. See, we picked this up and certainly this scripture does deal with uh, the sexual homosexuality and all that stuff. And uh, it doesn't go into bestiality, but all that stuff is covered in that topic. But the main problem that Paul brings out here is that their worship was off. They started off by not glorifying God as God. They served the creature. And the first creature that he mentions that they serve was like unto man. Man was the first thing that they worshiped. 
Then they moved on to the four-footed beast and all, all of that. It's in verse number 23. And changed the glory of God, of the uncorruptible God, into an image made like to corruptible what? Man. So what we have now is a worship problem. We have people worshiping me. And in fact, most people will do anything in the name of love. That's why our relationships are so messed up. Because the relationships that, that we have established, they kind of have a foundation, a substratum of a little bit of idolatry. And it starts in our kids. And the cartoons know how to get them. I just want to grow up and meet my prince. Somebody that's going to save me from all of my troubles. Right? And we think that's so cute. They're dressed up as little princess tiara. And, and, you know, they have on their crown. And they make their tea. And they play in, like they're in the castle and all of this stuff. But, but that's really putting something in the mind at a young age. And then when they look for that, they realize, oh, I just got a guy that just works at UPS. It's not good enough. I know some people now, whatever position they found themselves in is not good enough because they had something else in their mind. And now they can't be happy because that was never really attainable because that's just not the way life works. But in a way, that became the idol that they went after. It wasn't just what, what God, what, what does God want for me? How many people really live their lives and, and just say, now I know, the, I know my dreams. I know my hopes. I know my desires. But what does God want for me? Because a lot of times our desires clash with God's. And that's why I was so grateful when the scripture uh, dawned on me that it is both it is him that both wills for you to do all of his good pleasure. Not just to do God's pleasure, but he, he wants you to to want to do his pleasure. So the core. Worship is the foundation of Paul's discourse. They didn't have a sin problem. They had a worship problem. He gave them over to sin because of their misplaced worship, because they didn't glorify God as God. Some of us may glorify God in certain ways. We, we, we glorify God as a provider. We, we glorify God as someone who can, you know, answer a prayer here and there. But to say that they didn't glorify him as God means that we're moving now into his sovereignty and we're moving into an area where there's some things that you're not going to agree with. And the question is, in those areas, will, will he still be God or will you just trade him in now for another idol and say, OK, well, I'll go to you, you know, when I want to feel good and speak in tongues. But. When I want to do something else, I'm going to just go to this idol over here because that one makes me feel good. That one fulfills what I want. This one over here only fulfills what I need. Well, I'm glad he fulfills my needs, but I'll, I got some wants. So we turn to the idol. And we're, we're kind of two-timing God in some of those areas. Not only did they not glorify God, but they changed the glory of God. When you change God's glory. Now, that doesn't change in fact his person that changes who he is to you as God they change the glory of God his splendor the things that made him God that makes him God you change that and you relabeled it and you reorganized it to fit your mindset your ideology 
That's very dangerous. And we, we do it all the time in organized religion. We rearrange God's glory. There's a noticeable difference when you read the book of Acts and then you look in 2014. <laughs> this is supposed to be the same worshipers. We're not supposed to really be any different. We, I mean, we have our modern day technology and all of that stuff. But, but worship wise and, and, and as far as God's glory and showing forth his glory, we're not supposed to look different than the first century church. We're not supposed to have less power than the first century church. We're supposed to be the same church. We, we do claim that it's one church. The early and the latter rain is still part of the same church. So what is the difference? Why do we look so different? Why do we not look as powerful? Why do we not look as unified? Why do, not, why do we not look as loving toward one another? Because some things got changed in the midst. God's glory got switched around. So misplaced worship is the result of misplaced faith. The just shall live by faith. It's the precursor to, to, I mean, the verse before we read this whole thing, Paul says the just shall live by faith. And that's really the premise of him going into them changing God's glory and changing his truth into a lie. Misplaced faith leads to misplaced love. And we will actually love what we worship because we have, we have placed extreme worth on it. Do we love who or what we worship or do we worship who or what we love? Do you love who you worship or do you worship who you love? <laughs> That's a question to ponder. Which one is going to come first, the love or the worship? The bottom line of the Bible is love. John three sixteen tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Not only is the bottom line of the Bible love, but the bottom line of our faith also is love. Matthew 22 and 37 says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second most important is similar. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets stem from these two laws and are fulfilled if you obey them. So if you want to keep the laws, just keep the first two and then the rest are covered under that. It's an umbrella effect. Keep only these and you will find that you are obeying all the others. And these are the words of Jesus. So we can get in, we can go and we could dissect all 613 of the laws and we could debate them and we can fast. We can even fast and pray. We, we can hold, conferences and convocations and talk about the laws and and you know the things that we want to do to please God right the one who gave the law and the one who the law was written to please comes on the scene and says just keep the first two and then the other 611 will fall in line love will always have an object love is just not out there just loosely hanging around somewhere it has an object Love for that object will always manifest itself with action. It has an object, and love will always do something in the form of an action toward that object. And that object and the love for that object will be total indulgence in it. 
Whatever you love, you will put all of yourself into. The object of love in 1 Timothy 3 and 1, he says, Know this also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now remember, whatever you love, you have an object. So he tells us here that the object of their love is their self. So when you love something, you put all of yourself into and you do it with action. So everything that you do is for self-pleasure. What generation more than ours is more most about self-pleasure? Self-indulgence. Egotistical. Self-centered. Even the psychologists and the sociologists will tell you that narcissism is on the rise. It's prophetic. Lovers of their own selves, they'll be covetous, bolsters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded. And here's the other one I want to pick up because I can't deal with all of these. I'm just dealing with the lovers uh, of, of themselves. He says, lovers of pleasures. More than lovers of God. I love my pleasure more than I love God. How do we know that you love your pleasure more than you love God? Because of what you love, you put your action to. So we have men that are lovers of their own selves and they're lovers of pleasures more than the lovers of God. And what's the result? They have a form of godliness. <laughs> but deny the power thereof. Then he says, from these kind of people... Turn away. Get away from them. Why? Because as we learned in Psalm 135 and 18, that whatever you worship, you're going to become. Wow. Object of love. 1 John 2 and 15. He says, stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you. For when you love these things, you show that you do not really love God. How do you show it? With your action. Whatever you love, you put action into it. Total indulgence. The pleasures of sin. He didn't say that the world didn't have anything to offer you. So why would we tell the young people, there ain't, ain't nothing out there in the world. Ain't, ain't, no, ain't no pleasures. Ain't nothing out there. Where, no, there's some pleasures out there. There's something that the devil can offer you. And it comes in many forms, but it all is going to boil down to idolatry because you didn't worship God. You'd rather go after that than to search for the true God. The devil will dangle all kinds of kingdoms in front of you from a pinnacle view. Now, the devil didn't follow Jesus to the pinnacle. You ever notice that? Pinnacle is the high peak of the mountain. It's a place of elevation. Is a place of power, really. The Bible tells us that Satan took Jesus to a pinnacle. Now, Jesus is God manifest. He's as high as it gets. But he made himself a little lower than what? Than the angels. What was Satan? He's an angel. He's still an angel. So in order for Satan to show Jesus some of his power... Jesus in his fleshly form was lower than the angel. 
This is how the Bible can tell us that Satan could take Jesus to a pinnacle. And although Jesus was holding the world in his hand at the moment, the form that he was in allowed Satan to think that you had got something to show me. Now, our problem is that we don't realize that we're in Christ who has been elevated, exalted, given a name that is above every name. And we're still allowing the devil to take us to a pinnacle. We're higher than the angels now because my life is hid in Christ, who is not now just a man, but he is the resurrected savior. He said, I have all power. He subjected himself to be taken to a pinnacle in that instance. We don't have to do that once we're in Christ. So now the devil's just dangling little things. Don't you want your marriage to look like them? Don't you want a nice big house like they got? Oh, look at them. They, they over there. They doing their thing. You, you, you know, you could be there. You, you could have that money, too. And then sometimes you don't realize way down the line, you talk to some of those and be like, oh, my God, I'm so glad I listened to the voice of God. We know some. I have a lot of friends in the industry I've always prayed for and always asked, how you doing? Are you, you, you doing all right? Seriously. I said, this is Dre. You can talk to me because I, I know what can be dangled out there. So that was just a side point. But the devil will dangle all kinds of kingdoms in front of you from a pinnacle view. This temptation is for you to place extreme worth on anything other than God. The Antichrist is already working. Y'all heard me teach many times. Antichrist doesn't mean against Christ. The devil don't really care if you for Christ. But if I can get you to put something next to and equal to Christ, I've done my job. And this is the harm in some of our uh, organized religion is that Remember, like those idols, God, he will let you worship what you want to worship. If you want to worship a religious system, that's the most dangerous thing to worship because it has a form of godliness, but it doesn't have the power. And it's evident that it doesn't have power because our church doesn't look like the first century church. That's a fact. So let's do a little deductive reasoning here. Y'all know I'm very, you know, just... Make common sense. Remember, uh, for slavery, we added one and one, connected the dots. So a little deductive reasoning. We talked about love, the object of love. Love has an object, and whatever that love, because it's uh, value, extreme worth is placed on the object of, of love, and then we indulge ourselves in the thing that we love. So John 14 and 15 says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. That's it. What commandments? Only the first two, right? Second Corinthians 5 and 15 says, He died for all so that all who living, having received eternal life from him, might live no longer for themselves. You don't live for yourself. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Didn't Paul tell the Corinthians that? Your body's not your own. Your salvation's not your own. I, I, I paid for this. 
So he died for us that we might no longer live for ourselves to please ourselves, but to spend our lives pleasing Christ who died and rose again for us. That's just a little deductive reasoning. If you love God, keep his commandments. And if you love him, you won't be living for yourself only. Some of us know some of the most selfish folk that ever walked the planet. They will profess the name of Christ. They can quote scriptures. They can sing songs. But when it comes to, to sacrificing and showing the love for Christ, because our, our fellowship and our servitude toward one another is really not about being seen or just to do something so you'll, you'll pat me on the back and thank me, but I do it because of Christ. John 13 and 34 says, and so I'm giving you new commandments to you now. Love each other just as much as I love you. Well, I can't love you in the same amount that Christ loves me if I don't embrace and know how much Christ loves me. And this is the this is the uh, thing. One of the core problems is that some of us don't know how much Christ loves us. We heard the rumor that he died. Right. It was a rumor hearsay. It was, you know, I heard somebody else say, you know, uh, give it to the Lord and he'll work it out. I heard somebody say that it was in a song and we jammed to it that night in church. But am I actually giving it over to the Lord for him to work it out? Or have I placed my faith in the song? And I like to sing and, and just quote that he give it to him and he'll work it out. That's idolatry. Now you're worshiping the order of religion that surrounds the truth of God. That's how we turn the truth of God into a lie. And that is how we hold the truth in unrighteousness. Your strong love for each other will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How much proof is really going out? I think it was Gandhi who said, I have no problem with your Christ. I love your Christ. It's your Christians I have a problem with. I love Christ. I'm all for Christ. But the ones who call themselves Christians? Not so much. First John 2 and 7 says, Dear brothers, I am not writing out of a new rule for you to obey, for it is an old one and you have always had right from the start. You have heard it all before. Yet it is always new and works for you just as it did for Christ. And as we obey this commandment to love one another, the darkness in our lives disappears and the new light of life in Christ shines in. So if we want the darkness to leave our lives and we want the new light to appear, that only comes in the commandment of loving one another after loving Christ. If we don't love Christ and then in turn love others, darkness glooms over you. And the Bible says that there is no darkness in him at all. I'm in Christ, but I'm full of darkness. No, you're not in Christ. I'm sorry. So these things really have to be pondered so we can see where are we guilty of idolatry. First Corinthians 13 and 13 says there are three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So ministry, if we go up to verses 1 through 3, ministry 
minus love equals nothing. So I ask you, out of all the sermons you've heard collectively in your mind, have you heard more preached on hope, faith, or love? She says hope, hope and faith, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the messages you've heard out of these three, the majority of them have been faith and hope. But Paul says that the greatest one is love. So how can we love if we're not hearing it? Then what are we having faith and hope in if not the thing that he loved, gave his life for, in order that it might turn around and spread the love. For the love of God is shared abroad. It didn't say the faith of God is shared abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. It didn't say the hope of God is shared abroad. But it's the love of God that's supposed to be shared abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. Faith works by love. So without the love, I can have faith and hope. I could sing my song, I could preach my message, I could do my dance. But Paul says it just sounds like tinkling cymbal. And you know what tinkling cymbal sounded like? Go back to Psalm 135. Psalm 135, they're trinkets. That's what it sounds like. I just, I see them in there shouting. But it, it's not a sweet savor to my ears. It's not honey. It doesn't taste good what they're doing down there in that building they call the church because faith and hope is, is living on. It's, it's marching on. It's strong. But there's no love. The world doesn't see it. The world doesn't see the love. They can't see me. God is not faith. God is not hope. God is love. He is the God of hope. See how this stuff just made a little deductive reasoning, right? A little common sense. And we wonder, then why are we preaching so much faith and hope without the love? And that ain't, that's not to say that you shouldn't preach hope or faith. But the greatest one is love. And without that, all of your ministry is nothing. So how does the time that we are living in affect our faith and love for God. Think about the things that you're going through in your life, that you've gone through, all your tests and trials, all of your temptations. And I think I really would rather hone in on the temptations. How are they affecting your faith in God? Your love for God? What is it that draws you to that thing or that person or that idea, that ideology that pulls you away just from God being God. And then how do we combat those things that threaten our love for God? It's the two questions we should ponder leaving here. How does the time that we're living in, the things that, that we go through, not the children of it, because we love to talk about stuff like that. You know, Solomon and his, all his wives, and they just turned his heart. Well, what's turning your heart? Right? Because there's something in this generation that has the ability to turn all of our hearts just as much as Solomon's wives turned his. We talk about Tira, the father of idol worship, Abraham's father. When God called Abram, he called Abram. 
But what did Abram do? He took the father of idol worship with him. God said, leave your father's house. What did he do? He brought the idol worship with him. And because of it, God stopped talking to him. Read Genesis. God spoke to Abram when he left Ur. He didn't say another word to Abram until Terah died. He waited for his idol worship to die before he spoke to him again. Then he said, all right, now, come on, I want to show you some places. And Terah means delay. Why? Because it's written in the Bible that whatever you worship, you will become. And in the midst and at the very inception of his call, Abraham messed it up with idol worship. And some of us, when we first entered holiness, you got your soul saved, but you were dropped into a den of idolatry. You worshiped the system. You worshiped the pastor. You worshiped the first lady. You, wor you worshiped the choir. You worshiped the praise team. You worshiped the programs. You worshiped the altar. You worship the house of God. Where he tells them in the book of Acts, what house will you build me? I don't live in a house made with brick and stone and mortar. I live in you. Yet, even though I live in you, you would drive 50 miles to a place and then ask me to come. When I was with you, when you were at home before you got dressed to go meet me. Idol worship. It's time to put God in his rightful place. 